Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here today and to worship our awesome God. What a savior, what a king. Uh, I, I got my dates mex- messed up last week, so we'll be having the family meeting or the quarterly meeting next week. So following next week's service, we'll have that meeting. It should be a great time to catch up and to share what's going on in the fellowship. And uh, yeah, it's wonderful to see the Lord working, just like we sung about today, that he is working. He's working in people's hearts. He's working in their lives. And, and what an awesome God we serve. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are awesome in your goodness to us all. We're so grateful for your blessings and your benefits and also for your wisdom in teaching us the way to go and showing us our sin and providing the means of atonement through Jesus and and giving us a hope of heaven by your grace and the gospel. So Lord, we pray that you would uh, minister to our hearts, you would uh, move in our midst. We thank you for those who are praying, for those who are serving, for the gifts that people give for the work of the ministry here, and we pray that you would use those for your glory, and that you'd use us, Lord, as your vessels to bring your love and grace to this world. Thank you for causing the light to shine, for raising the dead to life, for opening the eyes of the blind, for cleansing the lepers, for giving us hope where we had none, for healing, and for uh, your presence today. And so, Lord, we pray that you be honored and glorified as we worship you, as we read your word together, in Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Genesis 34. Back in the study of Genesis In year nine, I remember my biology teacher teaching us about um, how bacteria multiplies exponentially and what that means. Like if you don't clean your teeth before bed, he had us do these sums and saying, well, you know, if you, if you don't brush your teeth before bed, you have this, this bacteria is just going to multiply. And uh, the, the point was, if, if one germ just divides every hour and you start with millions Think of how much, how many germs, how much bacteria is in your mouth. And it made an impression on me that I remember it to this day. Uh, You know, there's 700 kinds of bacteria in your mouth. It's a little factoid for you. And 6 billion of them live there. So it's like when you start with millions and you don't brush your teeth, it multiplies exponentially. And that was the point. And you know, if sin is in our lives and in our heart, it also can multiply exponentially. And we'll see that in this passage today. And there's no virus, there's no bacteria that can compare to the damage and the destruction that sin brings to our lives. The death of the body and the soul. And the Bible, we'll see as we've been studying through, it gives us an unvarnished view of humanity, just the sinfulness of mankind, that God uh, judged the earth with the flood, but he was gracious to save Noah and his family. It's like if we had the choice to settle out of court and not have our dirty laundry aired, we would prefer that. But God, he he chooses to put it on display so everyone can see it, not just what has happened in the past, but so that we can look at ourselves and realize we are afflicted with the same disease, with that sin that easily uh, ensnares us and tricks us and deceives us and leads us to ruin. Without God's gracious intervention, we would be lost forever. We would be dead in trespasses and sins, and God is able to raise us from dead 
death to life. We come back to this passage where Jacob has responded to God's call. He told him to return from his uncle's house in Padam Aram and to return to his father's house in Beersheba. And we see that he did not travel southeast with Esau. Remember, he met with Esau and they had a reunion. He headed away from Esau to Shechem after staying in Succoth for a while. And he bought in Shechem a parcel of land. And he had no idea of the problems that were going to come there. It's like a little yeast permeates the whole lump of dough. Well, a bit of sin just leads to more and more sin. So chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the son of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attached to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Dinah was Jacob's only daughter, the daughter born of Leah. It says that this young woman went out to see the women of the land. She'd grown up in a house full of brothers. I'm sure they had some female servants, but she was keen to make friends with the local girls. And so she goes out. It seems she went without the protection of a chaperone or a family member or a servant. She caught the eye of this local ruler named Shechem. And he did what many rulers did in those days as he saw something or someone he wanted. He took her and violated her. So he slept with her. He raped her. Sexual assault, we'll see, it was rife in the land of Canaan. God's judgment of Sodom did not wipe out this practice. Tragically, it continues to this day where someone goes out innocently and they are taken advantage of and violated, abused. It's troubling how often this can happen. Social media and apps for some people are the equivalent of going out to see the daughters of the land today. And when you go out, you, you face risk. And I don't want to in any way victim shame Dinah for being violated. This was unprecedented. We don't read of this happening um, to a woman to this point. She had gone to see the daughters of the land, but there's this ruler who saw her and he took her. And so to victims of sexual assault and violence, you are not to blame for the sins of others against you and against God. God can take the ashes of your virginity and he can give us beauty that's not found anywhere else. But it's tragic and it's sad. So he saw Dinah, he took her, slept with her, yet he was deeply attracted to her. He, he really did love her. Despite his sinful choices, it says he spoke kindly to her. He expressed his desire to pay any price to marry her. And sadly, Shechem is like many people today, ignorant of God's plan for marriage. That we should marry before sex and for all sexual activity to be consensual between wife and husband. Now, the passage makes it clear to us what it meant in that day, because it says Jacob knew that his daughter had been defiled. So this word defiled, it means desecrated or ceremony unclean. In that culture, it meant her prospects of marriage or motherhood were likely gone. 
Under law that would come later, there was a provision for someone who had slept with, in, in this a situation like this, that required the man to take her as wife. But at this stage in the history of Canaan, people did what was right in their own eyes. And it was very problematic. We see that with Pharaoh, right? Remember Abraham and later Isaac, they went into a new country and their wives drew the attention of those kings who brought them to their houses and God protected them. But it was just a common practice in that day that a ruler would see something attractive or a woman that was attractive and would take them and the family couldn't say anything about it. Now it may surprise you that Shechem was the most honorable man of his house. And that should give you a little insight into the condition of the culture at that time. He was the most honorable among them. Now, we're not told how Jacob knew that his daughter had been raped or that she was living with him. We're told that Jacob heard and he restrained himself. He had a poker face until his sons came home. Verse 6, then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with him saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Now, Hamor, we've heard about this guy before. He was the one from whom uh, Jacob had bought that parcel of land in Shechem. And he came to Jacob to arrange a marriage between his daughter and uh, Dinah. Now, it's kind of out of order, right? Like he had slept with her. She is forced to live with him. And he says, oh, please give her as a, as a wife. But he, he is going beyond probably the customs of that day to approach Jacob and to ask politely, you know, please do this thing. Now, Dinah's brothers, they were in no mood to bargain. It says they were furious. They were in a rage about what had been done. They were grieved that their sister be shake, so treated so shamefully. And some translations say, in Israel, others translated against Israel. And so that has the idea that they were upset that this was against their household, against their father, that shame had been brought upon their family because of what had been done. And it seems like they were almost more angry about that than, that, than it had anything to do about God at all, that the sin was against God first. And they responded to the news differently. Jacob, he's cool and guarded. His sons are just uh, very upset. And you see, there's a lack of compassion towards Dinah here. Grief that would move them to seek the Lord. They're not seeking the Lord. They're just now met by Hamor. Now Hamor, he's completely oblivious to the offense that his son had done. He comes to proposition marriage and how they could arrange this. And he says, you know, my son loves your daughter. The problem was that Shechem had taken Dinah, took her, lay with her, and then asked for marriage. And he says, you know, in our mind, in my mind, this is the beginning of a prosperous union, not only between them, but between our whole households. You know, you give your daughters to us, we'll give our daughters to you, and we'll have trade, and it'll be great. It'll be great for us all. Dwell in the land, trade, and acquire possessions. 
Now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul warns followers of Jesus not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. This verse is often reserved to speaking of marriage specifically, but the implications are far more broad than that. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Since we have been yoked to Christ, we've been born again and we trust in him, we're not to unite with those who are opposed to him. Paul was writing to people who knew that you do not yoke a horse with an ox. They have a totally different temperament, body style, shape. Their abilities are different. One's built for speed. The other's built for like low gear hauling, pulling. And if you were, the yokes do not, they're not the same either. The way that they fit over the shoulders. And so he says, don't be unequally yoked. You would never put a donkey with an ox or a horse with an ox. So why should you who are yoked with Christ be yoked in business or in marriage with an unbeliever. You won't be pulling in the same direction. You won't be working together in obedience to Christ. You have no business uniting yourself with false apostles or preachers of heresy. This should not mark our lives as followers of Christ. Paul had said previously, because we're, we're in the world, we'll come in contact with people of the world. And we're not, to, we're not called to avoid unbelievers. He's talking of yoking yourself to him. I mean, how can people who don't know Christ know Christ and respond to the gospel unless they hear it preached to them? So there's great value in us being in the world, but not of the world and leading people to Christ. Then he goes further in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexual immoral of this world or the covetous extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's saying, you know, be on guard with who you surround yourself with, but realize we're not of the world. And God has called us to bring the light into the darkness. But if there's a believer who's not walking with Christ, then we aren't to be yoked to them either, but to seek them restored to fellowship with God. Just like it says in Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual, if you see a brother overtaken in the trespass, seek to restore them in a spirit of meekness, knowing you too can also be tempted. We're no better than anyone else. We all make mistakes. We all sin. Yet, if we're yoked to God, to Christ, we're not to have uh, fellowship with darkness. Hamor, he appeals to the flesh, right? He's saying, you will get rich through this deal. You will be prosperous through this. So let's work together. Genesis 34, 11. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you. 
We will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. You see Shechem, he's there. He, he is attending these proceedings and he says, guys, ask me anything. I'm willing to give anything to marry Dinah. Please give her to me as wife. And notice it's not Jacob who's negotiating. He's still very cool. He's not showing his emotions here. But his sons spoke deceitfully. And they said, we have a plan, but you can have your, what you want, but only under one condition. You all have to be circumcised as we are. It would be impossible unless you meet these conditions. And if you don't do it, the deal's off. So this is your only chance. All of you need to be circumcised as we are. And with this desire for vengeance, Simeon and, who was it? The other one, Levi. We'll see that they reduced circumcision, which was proof of a covenant with God, that they would be his God, they, he would be their God and they would be his people to a right to get what they wanted. God is not in this picture at all. They just say, you do this physical act like we've done and we'll be one people without any mention of God. And that's all it was about. They divorced circumcision from the spiritual significance to deceive. Now, I'm sure we're not trying to deceive people when we're sharing Christ with them or talking about the benefits of the gospel, but we can make the mistake of pitching Christianity or following Jesus primarily by the benefits they'll receive from following him. Like if you join the club, if you're like us, well, all these benefits will be yours. Rather than dealing with the sin, right? There's no mention of taking Dinah the rape that had occurred. They don't call him out on that at all, but they just pitch the good things if they all do this act of circumcision. We can be like this with spiritual disciplines. Like if you, if you want something, do this. Read your Bible, pray, go to church, give financially, all these things. If you tick these boxes, you can get what you want too. But that is problematic. That is wrong because those things are spiritual disciplines that flow out of a relationship with God. When we've repented, we've been born again. We've been transformed by God's grace. And so we respond not to get something from God, but in response to what he has given us, who he is for us. To appeal to the flesh is to move away from faith in God. It is true that people without Christ are missing everything they need for satisfaction, hope, and the abundant life that God has promised us. Without him, you have, we have nothing and we are nothing. So we must give them the gospel that begins with the holiness of God, that talks about the sinfulness of man, that we deserve death and that we are facing judgment. And that we must lose our lives for Christ's sake to find them. And he, we have this promise of hope that's enduring and forever because of what Jesus has done for us in his death, in atoning for sin, and his resurrection, showing that he has overcome sin and death. Genesis 34, 18. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. 
So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Well, at this offer by Jacob's sons, they're like, sounds like a great deal. Let's do this thing. And like Abraham was circumcised on the day when God said, this is what you need to do to enter into this covenant with me, Shechem did the same thing. He kept his word. On that day, he was circumcised. And it says that he was um, the most honorable of his house. This is spoken to his credit. His actions affirm that people are willing to make great sacrifices to get what they want. He wanted something. He was willing to sacrifice himself for it. So Hamor, the Shechem, they gather all the people together and they make their pitch. And you see that they had an angle, right? Hamor is like, hey guys, if we join with them, won't everything they have be ours? Won't the riches of Jacob be mine? He hadn't talked about that. He was talking about just marriage. And so when you, when you talk about the world, it always is angling to get more out of us. It wants to consume us. And he's very much interested in what he would gain. And he looked with envy upon the herds and flocks of Jacob. And he said, this is a means to my end to make his wealth mine. It's a small concession to gain prosperity and power. And so he dangles the land and the trading and the benefits to say, hey, give us your daughter. And we'll have a good life together. Now, what Hamor and Shechem didn't understand is that they were deceived. They were tricked. Proverbs 26, 27 says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. So they think they have the upper hand here, but something shocking is going to happen. Genesis 34, 25. Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives. They took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses." When the males were sidelined with pain, due to that circumcision, inflammation, perhaps even infection, they didn't have the medicines we have today. Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, they carry out their intended plot to murder all the men of the city. So they boldly come in, they killed all the males with the edge of the sword, including Hamor and Shechem. They rescued Dinah from the house she was staying in 
They departed from the city. It says the sons of Jacob came and they plundered everything. They took the wealth. They took the animals. They took the children, the women, all the, the sheep, oxen, and donkeys, the crops, all as revenge for the rape con- committed against their sister. Now, revenge, revenge plots, they're common in Hollywood. I forget what percentage of movies are a revenge plot, but it's a high percentage. Know that taking revenge is always sin. It always goes too far. That's why it goes too far, is because it's sin. They were not content to confront the sin and to hold the man accountable who committed this terrible deed, but instead, they killed everybody and they took the rest as their possession. Think about how the sin multiplied exponentially. She goes to see the daughters of land. Shechem sees her. He, he lusts for her. He violates her. Vengeful anger and hatred, they prompt the sons of Jacob to deceive Hamor and Shechem. Hamor and Shechem, well, Hamor especially, was greedy and envious for the goods of Jacob. And then Jacob's sons go in and murder everyone and steal all their stuff. And it just spiraled completely out of control. It shows us this situation, how sin literally brings death. And only God can save us from this vicious death spiral that sin brings. He's only he is able to stop this corrupting influence of sin upon us and realize that in a spiritual sense, this is true for everyone. We may not have been, have seen anything like this happen in our day, but know that this is happening every day because of sin in our, in the lives of people. And we'll see that forgiveness from sin doesn't negate bad consequences. God did not turn a blind eye to this. They did not get away with anything. Neither did Jacob, because before he passed, he passed over blessing his sons. He passed over blessing uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. This is, what he, this is his final words about them, that they would be scattered in Genesis 49, five through seven. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man. And in their self will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Jacob condemned this rampage as sin. Their vindictive anger, it says their self-will, their deceit, it led to the deaths of Hamor and his whole house. Their anger was not righteous because it had nothing to do with God. It was all about them being offended for being shamed. They had felt dishonored and they took action to revenge them, avenge themselves. And sin brought a destructive curse that only God could destroy. Now we have to remember when we've been wronged, there is a desire in us for vengeance, for revenge. And know that revenge is God's sovereign territory. It is his possession. Only he can wield it wisely and perfectly weighted. If we take vengeance, whether it's in a rage or 
secretly plotting against them, we transgress and God will judge us for that. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And I like how it begins with beloved. Know that you in Christ are loved. You have received that love. And so we can trust him that he says, vengeance is mine. That's not yours to play with. This is mine and I will repay. He doesn't say when, he doesn't say how. It requires faith in him to trust him and to wait on him. We need not avenge ourselves. We can look to him for healing, protection, and help. The God who created hell that burns forever to torment Satan and his demons and all who sin is able to make good on his promise. And we're, we're wrong, like, I'm going to get back at him for what he's done. He's going to pay, right? I'm going to choose what he pays. Well, Simeon and Levi paid the most with the blessings withheld from God. Because there was great blessing for them. But they denied that for themselves through their offense and this transgression. Shechem, a rapist, was more honorable in this passage of scripture than Simeon and Levi were. And it's ironic that people who know God can be more cruel than unbelievers when we avenge ourselves rather than trusting God who is merciful and just and leaving all vengeance to him. So you know what? That's God's job. He's going to be faithful. He says, vengeance is mine. I'll repay. I don't need to show that person how much they should be paying or how much I have suffered. God knows and he's able to heal us. He's able to help us. Genesis 34, 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they realized they were naked. They were exposed before God and they tried to cover themselves well, this sin that had multiplied exponentially, it made Jacob feel exposed, his whole household. And he's like, you have made me look bad. He was very concerned about the optics, what other people saw and how they would respond. And he's saying, well, like we're just a small family and, and now you've done this. You've made me look bad in front of everyone. They could rise up against us. His primary focus was on who? Not Dinah, not God, himself, his household. It's very natural, right? It's easy to criticize Jacob because he didn't mourn the murder of the townsfolk or rejoice in the safe return of Dinah, like, well done, boys, you brought her back. He doesn't mention that at all. But realize that we can make the same error. I have been angry. I have felt embarrassed because my children, when they were young, did something I thought reflected poorly upon me as a parent. So I was upset about that. Not because it was sin, but it made me look bad. I felt like I looked bad. And if we can be like that about the behavior of a child, we can be like that about a lot of things and we don't even think about it. We don't even realize how wrong it is. We can be more concerned about what a neighbor or a friend thinks about us or even a stranger thinks about us 
that we could be obnoxious to them because we've lost our temper. We could be more concerned about that than we hurt our spouse or we have, you know, wounded a child or we have offended God. He may not even come into our minds because we're so fixed on like how this affects me. And it's not about what, how, that should not be our primary thing. It's about how is, how is this bad for me now? It's like, this is an offense against God. He's the one who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now we are not under his wrath as children of God, but he certainly will wisely correct us. We should grieve over sin. We should repent because it is something that cuts us off from fellowship with God. It's like God himself was lusted over, raped, lied to, deceived, murdered. He says, if you've done this to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me, Jesus said, when we've done things that are good for his glory. Well, it's like these things, these sins were done against him. He was the victim here. But Jacob complains his sons had stirred up trouble. They, but then they said, you know, should he treat our sister like a harlot? They were correct to take action, to care about their sister, to protect and deliver her, but it was no justification for their sin. They went way too far. And as a consequence, they were passed over with that blessing of their father, who before his death cursed their anger and said, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And this is really, really cool what God does, how gracious he is. If you have in your Bible a map, you'll see that Judah is big and Simeon is like right in the middle of it. Well, over time, that tribe was absorbed into Judah and the Levites, he scattered them and they became his ministers, right? The high priest had to be a Levite and he put them throughout the whole nation teaching his people, his ways and his laws so that they could live in the way that pleases him. So this curse, God changed it to a blessing. So he divided and scattered them, but he did so by drawing people to himself so that they would hear his word and they would walk in his ways and not do as their fathers had done. Glory to God. Isn't this what God has done for us through the gospel? We were dead in sins. We were destined to destruction, deserving of God's wrath forever, but he has called us. He has forgiven us. We've been called children of God and we have this eternal a future in his presence and he uses us to draw other people to him that we would give them the truth and we'd walk in his ways and we wouldn't take vengeance but trust him now for a point of application turning your bibles to proverbs 25 starting in verse 21 i don't even need to tell you that it's obvious we should not take vengeance like simeon and levi did we can see and I think there's not, not a person I can imagine who would say they were perfectly justified in doing what they did. They, they thought it was fine at the time. But our aim as followers of Christ is not just to avoid murdering people, to avoid raping. No, we are to do the things that please God. So the positive thing, not just avoid the sin, but love one another, pray for one another, be generous with our time and our resources to bless others. And so Solomon writes in Proverbs 25, 21, 
If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. The one who follows Christ and walks in his ways, they have a promise of a reward from God. And if we seek to get a reward from man, that is your reward. That's the end of it. But if we do things as unto the Lord, he gives us a reward from himself. And those, we're called to love our enemies rather than avenging them. We may feel like taking vengeance. We might feel like even saying something bad about them, but instead to love them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. If they're hungry, meet that need. Now, isn't it natural to hate our enemies? And they say, I don't want to be around that person, much less feed them or help them. But the scriptures say, this will heap coals of fire on their head. Now, in that day, when your fire went out, they didn't have books of matches like we do or a nice, uh, you know, a fire starter or something. You can just start a fire, turn on your electronic range and just fires right up. You would go to your neighbor and you'd say, hey, can I borrow some of your coals? Because you'd always keep that fire running because you were going to be um, cooking or for warmth or to boil water. And so it's like, even when your neighbor has been awful in moving the landmark and he's lying about it, help meet his need. And that gift will melt his heart. Kindness will have an impact on his life. A hard heart can be melted by kindness. So Paul urges believers in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Know that Jesus has conquered evil, sin, and death. That we do not need to be conquered or overcome by it any longer. I think of Stephen while the stones were raining down upon his head for his witness of Christ. He did not curse or threaten. He didn't say, you know, you'll get what's coming to you. Filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what he said in his final moments in Acts 7, 59. It says, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see the final words of Stephen. He's not running. He's not cowering. He's not threatening or hurling abuse or curses at those who are hurting him. His words were marked by love, grace, forgiveness. Just like Jesus, who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Evil was overcome by good that day, even though it was Stephen whose body was buried. Evil's overcome every day when the children of God love others like Jesus loves us. And as Stephen entered into eternal glory by faith in Jesus and obedience to his Lord, may we bring him glory by putting aside vengeance, taking vengeance upon our enemies, hating them, withholding love from them. Now, there may be people that you hate because of what they've said, because of what they've done to you, and it cannot be taken back. There may be people that you're convinced hate you because of something in your past, how they've treated you. But will you be overcome by evil today 
or will you overcome evil with good? To the child of God, we can answer that question with our lives. Today is the day to confess of our bitterness, our hatred, repent, and forgive, knowing that God is the judge. Vengeance is him. He will repay. And he rewards those who trust in him. He rewards those who obey him. So don't allow sin to multiply in your life unchecked. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day of healing and transformation as we follow Jesus. We are free from sin's power and let's not be brought under it willingly again when we take vengeance for ourselves. Take courage, brothers and sisters. The Lord knows far better than I could ever what you've faced, what you're facing, your past, and the pain that's there. Know that he is a redeemer and he is a savior and we have a hope with him that we enter into now by his grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us life, for loving us while we were yet sinners and we were under wrath and deserving of judgment forever to be cast away from your presence as a rotten thing. You have come to us and you have called out to us and you have given us the hope of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Jesus. Thank you for the gospel and we thank you even for this passage that's it's just heartbreaking, the things that have happened and the things that still happen to this day. But Lord, we look to you, the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And Lord, we, we have, if we have trespassed through taking vengeance for a, a scheme or a plot against others, if we have hated in our hearts, Lord, we repent and we, we give you that property back. That's your territory. And we pray, Lord, that you would put in us that heart of love that, that trusts you, that waits on you, that rejoices in the hope and the healing and the deliverance you have brought. Thank you, Lord, that we can look to you and, and be saved, saved from our vengeance, saved from our sin, and that we have a new life forgiven, cleansed, called, and blessed by the Most High. Thank you, Lord, that you can take a curse and you can turn it into a blessing. And I pray that you would bless and guide and protect and provide for us as we look to Jesus today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.